welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlap. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Riverkeeper discussing why they are removing the dam on Mill Creek in the city of Rensselaer. Then we talk with John Amidon about his recent arrest for protesting nuclear weapons out there in Nevada. Later on, we hear about the graphic liberation exhibit and workshop at the Opolka Gallery in Albany. Then it's time for some scary books, kids' books, for Halloween from the Troy Public Library. And finally, we hear from Megan Mahalan about her October 20th appearance at 3rd Thursday Poetry Night at the Albany Social Justice Center. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports RPI doctoral candidate Lily Donaldson was crowned Miss United States. Donaldson, who is studying controlled environmental agriculture, won the pageant Sunday in her home state of Tennessee, though she represented New York. The man who disappeared after leaving a drug treatment facility in Glenville following a criminal arrest earlier this summer was found dead in his hometown of Janesville in a vacant lot. Clarence Kilwalski was reported missing by family members August 11th after checking out of Conifer Park in Glenville the day before. He was last seen at the Saratoga Springs Amtrak station where he unsuccessfully tried to purchase a ticket back to Janesville, his hometown in western New York, about 350 miles away. The TU reports that the Facebook group that had organized to try to find him is now calling for justice for Kowalski. The city of Saratoga Springs plans to open a new year-round 24-hour shelter for unhoused people at the present site of a senior center. The seniors recently received a $3 million grant from Stewart's shop for a new center. At the same time, city council is considering a panhandling order ordinance. The Times Union reports that at a public hearing Tuesday night, many spoke up about against a prop a proposed ordinance to ban panhandling at intersections that could block traffic near ATMs and in parking garages. Following the hearing, the lead sponsor said there was no rush and the city should first focus on improving services. New York State Police Superintendent Kevin Bruin resignation has taken effect this week. His departure came two weeks after Governor Hochul confirmed her office was examining reports that Bruin had shielded a former human resources official from internal complaints due to their close working relationship. The Daily Gazette reports that the new Schenectady County Library Director, Charity Throne, used the local library system when growing up in the area. Throne was officially appointed to the position by the Schenectady County Legislator earlier this month. She succeeds Karen Bradley, who retired earlier this year after a decades-long career with the library system. The Gazette also reports that the Schenectady City Council say they will move forward with implicit bias training sometime next month, following a public fallout in September where several lawmakers accuse each other of being racist. Council members agreed to complete the training earlier this month. That's it for headlines. 
Up first, Riverkeeper recently received a state grant to remove the dam on Mill Creek in the city of Rensselaer, one of several thousand they wanted to remove to help fish. George Jackman talks to Mark about why. We're joined by George Jackman, who is the Senior Habitat Restoration Manager for Riverkeeper. And recently they received a, a, a grant from the State Department of Environmental Conservation uh, related to uh, removing a dam, I guess, on Mill Creek uh, in the uh, city of Rensselaer. And this is part of an ongoing effort they are trying to uh, restore access, remove dams in the Hudson watershed. So um, we invited George on to talk about, uh, you know, this project. Um, maybe a brief introduction of Riverkeeper. Riverkeeper's only been on our show previously. And, and then why is uh, removal of dams so important? Well, again, uh... What I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that river uh, free-flowing creeks are, uh, they bind ecosystems together. They are the great uh, in integrators of ecological processes and habitats, and they help generate and sustain downstream productivity in the estuaries and nearshore fisheries. The problem is that many of our streams have been dammed you know, for to harness the power of flowing water. It seems like a great idea, but these places are, were critical habitat for many of our, uh, our fishes, our migratory fishes, most of which are now in serious decline and depleted. So in order to save these species from you know, extirpation from the Hudson River ecosystem or further decline, we're trying to expand their spawning and nursery habitat as much as possible, while also at the same time working out in the open ocean to reduce commercial uh, targeted uh, fisheries and bycatch on these same species. So, the main reason is that dams fragment ecosystems and they interrupt ecological processes. I hope now, that answers the question why we've gone around trying to remove these old dams that really don't serve much of a purpose anymore. Now, I saw in the uh, article that in 2016, uh, Riverkeeper actually removed the uh, Wineskill Dam in Troy. And, and actually within days, apparently thousands of herons were we're seeing migrating upstream this morning for the That's first right. time in and 85 years. Yeah, that was what is really magical, that they were dispossessed from their habitat. And as soon as the door was open, they recolonized that system. And just once you make it available, they will find it. And that's really what is really important. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to expand their habitat. But there's, in an era of climate change, there's another reason too. There's a human interest. As, as precipitation becomes more intense and more frequent, we need to allow the water to flow and to drain. And dams interrupt that drainage process and removing them can help make um, more resilient communities in an era of climate change. Now, when I talked to you earlier, you were 
you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, on the Post and Kill uh, Gorge in, in Troy, which goes a couple hundred feet up, yeah. um, actually eels managed to, to climb up there to migrate? Yes, yes. They're, they're some of the most incredible species on this planet. They are, there's a, a book and they, it calls them the most mysterious creature in the sea. Um, what they do is just beyond human comprehension. That's a 285 foot climb and they are able to adhere to wetted surfaces that have and climb that gorge and they will find their way. However, dams will restrict their ability to climb because you get a, a torrent of flowing water. If they have a, a wetted surface that it gives them purchase, they can climb and they will, that will be their life's imperative to get upstream. At, and then at some point they will wake up and head back to the Sargasso Sea. So it is really a, it's a, it's, it's a wonder and it, it creates a sense of awe that they can do that without arms or legs. Apparently there are about 1600 dams, um, you know, along the uh, rivers and streams in the Hudson Valley. And, and many of them are obsolete, apparently, you know, built, you know, maybe in the 19th century, I guess, like the one in uh, Mill Creek and, and Rensselaer was, um, you know, built, you know, for a felt factory and, and, and that no longer is operating. How, how far along are you in, in getting these 1600 dams removed or how many you know, is the target? Well, first of all, that there are probably more than 1600. Uh, I estimate there are probably at least 2000 because a lot of them don't even exist and I find these old legacy dams that are no longer uh, that are not on any database. Um but you know it will be impossible to remove all 2000 dams and that's not really well, also, there's also another 20,000 culverts, half of which are misaligned, too. So the Hudson watershed has a circulatory problem. But what we're trying to do is strategically remove dams, dams that form first barriers, and dams that will open up um, extensive amounts of habitat, or as much habitat as possible. So we're looking at it strategically rather than every dam that comes along. Um, now, your title is Habitat uh, Restoration uh, Manager. Are there other ways that you're also doing habitat restoration besides, you know, opening up these old dams? Yeah, well, um, another interest is realigning uh, culverts that, you know, can be perched, which create dams. And then last, just last week, uh, we planted 100 trees alongside... Um, the Quiset Creek, where we removed the dam, part of our reasoning is we removed invasive species and then planted native trees. What we want to do is shade out the river and keep them as cool as possible. And we want to remove uh, invasive species that create a monoculture and then plant native species wherever we can, um, native trees. We want, because it's really important that a, a river is allowed to move and latitudinally expand into the floodplain 
and it 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 derives sediment and nutrient flow by doing that. So it a river is a living system. So we try to do, work on riparian corridors as much as the rivers themselves. Just uh, having know an old friend of mine, one of the shad fishermen down in Poughkeepsie, and they've actually closed, I guess, the shad fishery, at least the commercial fishery, and a shad come in from, from the ocean. Is that situation improving with the shad at all? No, the shad, you know, um, the shad are in trouble. Um, they've, they're depleted. They're coastwide depleted. Their populations are bad, uh, are very low, and they have failed recruitment in at least 20 of the past 22 years. That means they haven't had a successful spawning cycle. And that bodes poorly. What we're also trying to do is we're trying to alleviate bycatch on them in the open ocean. When fishermen are using giant nets and targeting, say, Atlantic herring, we want them to be aware of shad and river herring and to avoid them as much as possible um, be because they're in a, a desperate condition right now. As a matter of fact, all migratory fish throughout the world are in tough conditions. They've declined, oh, about 85% over the past 30, 40 years. We've been talking with uh, George uh, Jackman, Senior Habitat uh, Restoration Manager for Riverkeeper. Uh, George, people want more information about the dam removal effort or your work. How best can they do that? They Well, we're going to be releasing a dam uh, a film, uh, a film about why we're doing this, and we're going to screen it. And if you come to one of these uh, venues, this has been Mark Dunley. You can check out the Riverkeeper website, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. George is certainly uh, somebody who seems to very much enjoy his job. He said, if you had any questions about dams and fish, he'd be glad to talk to you. His email is gjackman at riverkeeper.org. For our peace bucket, Mark talks with John Amadon about his recent arrest protesting nuclear weapons at the Nevada National Security Site, formerly known as the Nevada Test Site. We're joined by our longtime peace correspondent, John Amadon, um, who I understand is actually out in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada area at the moment. Uh, last Sunday, uh, John, you were arrested at the Nevada national security site why are you there and what were you arrested for well Mark, thanks for having me uh the nevada desert experience has an event each year called justice for our desert it brings the tenders into the desert and it shows uh shows uh, all of us the extraordinary beauty of this land we also uh, witnessed the extreme desecration which is taking place at the uh, Nevada National Security Site. Uh, this is formerly the Nevada Test Site, and it's actually the most bombed out place on the face of the earth, where over 1,000 approximately 1,000 uh, nuclear detonations took place here. And we also witnessed uh, at Creech Air Force Base one of many places of the drone assassination program also. Okay, so can you walk us through what you know what took place on Sunday at the security site? Sure. Uh, 
it's a, it's really quite a great event. Uh, we arrived in Mercury, Nevada on Saturday, October 15th, and then we camp out uh, at Peace Camp, which is a designated historical site. It's across from the Nevada security site uh, across the highway from 95. We sleep out overnight, enjoy the desert, and um, early Sunday morning, Chief Johnny Bob, who is a Western Shoshone spiritual person, holds a traditional sunrise service, and and that's how we start the day. And we uh, he offers prayers in the Shoshone language. We offer our prayers and blessings, and um, then we have a breakfast, and then walk down to the test site. The uh, Western Shoshone are the legal owners of this land, which is under occupation by the U.S. government. They are, in fact, a sovereign nation, Nui Segovia. So how did you uh, end up being arrested, and uh, what are the charges you're facing? Yeah, this is really interesting, because Johnny Bob uh, issues us, Chief Johnny Bob issues us land use permits. So we're legally on Western Shoshone land. About 10 a.m., we walked down to the white line on the road. It's not even the official gate of the security site. They were met by Nye County Sheriff's Department personnel and security personnel from the Nevada uh, National Security Site. And, and this year, we were actually surprised to see uh, some of the personnel carrying automatic rifles strung across uh, their shoulders. So uh, were you arrested for walking down the middle of the road or did you actually cross no, onto no, restricted site? At a certain point in time, we stop at the line and there we, we have a conversation for a bit of time. And then some of us um, clearly uh, uh, just cross the line as we are, we have permits to be on the, the land, legal permits that are issued by the owner. The land is under a legal occupation by the U.S. government. So since you have legal permits, I, I believe you've done this before. What does the court say when you say, oh, hey, wait a moment, judge, this is, you know, this is Shoshone land and we have their permission. How do they yeah, vi violate you for trespass you? Yeah, normally, honestly, uh, normally the uh, DA doesn't prosecute. He, last time I was arrested, they were um, dismissed in the interest of justice. And frankly, um, you know, we're interested in pursuing a legal case uh, because of the, we would hope that the Western Shoshone regain use of their homeland. And that's part of what we uh, would like to accomplish. Uh, clearly, we want to uh, see nuclear weapons abolished. You know, uh, since it's been about uh, 50 years, October 16th actually was uh, 50 years ago to the day that the Cuban Missile Crisis started. And right now, you know, Russia and the United States are hurling threats uh, back and forth about nuclear war over Ukraine. And we're closer to nuclear war now since any time since the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And what's really important about all of this is back then, the generals were saying, hey, don't do this. This is madness and uh, would pretty much spell the end of humanity as we know it if we get into a nuclear war. 50 years later, we don't seem to have that, that knowledge anymore. And some people can think 
you know, we can win a nuclear war. Well, it'll be a limited nuclear war. We'll win it. No, no nuclear war. This is madness. Now, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there were more than 1,000, you know, test detonations of, of nuclear weapons uh, at this particular site. How does that leave the land and radiation and how do the, you know, uh, original owners and residents, you know, how do they deal with that level of contamination? Uh, well, part of what, I mean, the history is interesting because when they did above ground uh, nuclear tests, then the whole country was being irradiated and we uh, had uh, radioactive rain in New York State. The dust would be picked up, carried. And, and Troy, New York, I believe, is one of the places to get a pretty big dose. Yeah, in Troy, New York was one, and there were a number of different hot spots in New York State. And eventually, you know, eventually people came and protested because there was cancer. There were the, you know, across the nation uh, and diseases, and so they stopped above ground atmospheric testing, and um, due to massive protests at the uh, Nevada test site, and. But there's still uh, what's now we they stopped underground testing, and here other countries are doing underground testing. Um, we can do subcritical testing, which is a controlled fusion before before it becomes uncontrolled, and then a computer model provides the rest of the information about the test. We have that kind of technology, but all you know. We don't need new nuclear weapons. We need to get rid of the weapons. We need to take all of that money and put it towards environmental uh, restoration and uh, you know, transforming our energy grid and doing all, all of the important things and uh, that we need to do to, to keep the planet fit for humanity. Also, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had universal health care in this country? for example, but. So what happens next? Uh, do you have a court date? Yeah, uh, we do. Uh, we enter police on January 23rd, uh, 2023, if the charges aren't dismissed. Uh, I was arrested with two other people, Brian Terrell, uh, the NDE facilitator, and Karen Pettit, who was an NDE board member. Uh, Karen received a warning as she hasn't been uh, there before, but Brian and I have, and we were cited for trespass. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can put together a legal team. Um, the last time I was arrested there, I had one in place, but then to fight the case and uh, help secure Shoshone uh, land rights and, and clearly to work to abolish nuclear weapons. And what we're really hoping out of all of this is that, you know, that the American people uh, as a whole, I mean, all of us need to call our government and say, hey, no nuclear war. This is a really bad idea and stop developing new nuclear weapons. They're illegal. Um, you know, let, let's take this money and put it to good use. Let's not threaten other countries. Let's start working with diplomacy and, and sane dialogue. We nobody can win a nuclear war. Nobody can win a war. Period. You know, as um, I'm forgetting the author, but the uh, I wish I had the correct attrition. But it was the quote was uh, winning a war is like winning earthquake. 
if people want more information, uh, John Amidon, more information um, about this experience and this issue, how do they do that? Uh, they can uh, go to NevadaDesertExperience.org and get more information there. And there are many other um, groups that will provide uh, comprehensive information about uh, nuclear weapons and the need for nuclear abolition. Well, thank you, John Ambedon. Uh, safe travels. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So we do our uh, Peace Bucket uh, first air every uh, Wednesday. You can go to mediacentra.org, top right, search for uh, peace. I will say right now, um, with the situation, the invasion of, by Russia into uh, the Ukraine has certainly brought the United States to the uh, and the world to the closest point of, of a nuclear war probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady. W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany. And streaming online at mediacentury.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Graphic Liberation is an interactive exhibition and workshop created by Joseph McPhee, or Josh McPhee, excuse me, <laughs> which is at the Opalic Gallery in Albany. Moses Nagel spoke with Rebecca Tolley and Natasha Holmes as they led a group through the creative process. You can do whatever you want. This, there's probably too many options right now, right? <laughs> yeah. So some people have taken you this, like anything sitting here, and then can I get a copy of this and then cut it out? Or there's also tons of stuff that's already printed here. And yes. all of these are up for grabs. So others have already come in and made things. And so you can take oh. this and like keep expanding on them. It's very unusual because usually you don't come into a gallery and expect to like make things yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea is that how, you know, so he's sort of taken all these images, protests, different protest movements, social movements from throughout history, and created templates that can be used and reused. And, and then in this workshop, we have, um, we have screen, silk screening set up, and it's nice because people can learn about the process of screen printing. It's something you, um, unless you took a course in it in school, you may not have ever seen how screen printing works or what it is. And this can be one plate, basically, so like one screen, so where you'd see two where you have them overlap. So mm. this was two different versions, and then run back through again, actually, for this ghost print, I think. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so like, you can take something like this and combine it with this. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. This is an exhibition by the artist and activist Josh McPhee. And basically, he's created a library, a lexicon of images that visitors can come and use to create their own uh, poster designs. And these sort of templates that you see on the wall um, have like history on the back of them of, about where these different images, how they evolved over time. 
And so he's sort of tapping into the idea of what memes were before the, the internet, um, but how these images have resurfaced different, different protest movements over time. So it's an unusual exhibition in that it's an actual workshop and you can come in and create stuff. So they can choose so, any okay. of those images or what, so, do they, what do they do? So there's a few different things. These templates on the wall are designed to be used with the Rizzo, which is that machine in the back that looks like a photocopier, but it's not. It's a fancy printing machine. It's kind of like uh, maybe like a mix of an offset printer for people who are familiar with that. So it creates a plate for whatever your design you're mixing in there. It's got two colors, uh, red and black. So you'll see a lot of the posters hanging up uh -huh. are red and black. But it prints with layering them. So it's like actual thick layer of ink. But you can kind of physically like blocks parts of these images, like say take out the text and then use other parts of it so it gets scanned in to be one layer. And then you can layer it with another image or your own um, text creation or whatever that you want to add to it. Oh, like you could put your organizations yeah. or your, your upcoming event yes. on there. So tell me who you're offering this to. So this workshop is open to any uh, members of the community that want to come in and create posters. Mostly it's designed for like different kinds of social movements that people care about, but you can also just come in and play around with the images. Um, obviously it's a lot of like protest kind of language imagery and a lot of uh, contemporary themes you'll see in that. Um, so some of the screens that were created for this, this exhibition, um, we've got the safe abortion now, we will fight flags um, that can be layered and set up in these, these stations. And then we've also got the the robot arm, this is a Nathan Mel's screen, uh, sort of punching the Supreme Court. And uh, then we've got a couple of screens over there. So we've got Abolish the Body Cops, uh, Reproductive Justice Now. So sort of like timely topical issues. What kind of groups have come in so far? A lot of student classes have signed up, but then we've had like outside groups. So we have a group of seniors coming today and I have a group that works on sort of spreading information about how to save the lake, uh, their, their lake community, so that they um, can sort of spread awareness about use of fertilizers that drain into the lake, that produce a weed problem, that kind of thing. So like health of the lake. I've recently been in contact with Food Not Bombs organization, so they're trying to get a group to come together. Uh, so yeah, lots of wide variety of community groups. How long does this go on? And if you if a group hears this and wants to get involved, what, what can they do? Right, so they can reach out to us at Alpaca. There's a contact information on the website, or they can reach out to me directly, RebeccaTolly at gmail.com, and we'll set you up with a time slot. We have like wide open schedule for the final week next week. Um, it runs until the 29th. So we're hoping to get a few, few more people coming through here. This is all uh, supported by a grant. So we want to um, have, have lots of groups coming through and people taking advantage of the space while it's here. And everything's free and provided. So um, that's unusual that's opportunity too. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks, it's just the, the look of the whole <laughs> workshop is really fun. Um, this is a little out of order, but but how um, how did you become the instructor for this as an artist or, and as a teacher? How are you? How did oh. you end up here? So I teach screen printing at UAlbany, and um, uh, I've worked with a 
Alpaca Gallery in the past as an artist um, exhibiting and uh, mostly in that capacity. So they were familiar with me and my work. And one of the things I like to do is um, live screen printing. So I think that's probably why they thought of me because this is like a made up like on the spot shop. And, and I like kind of engaging with people who come up and want to learn how to make prints. And so they needed somebody to kind of help organize the space that was familiar with the process. We basically, we're just here, the instructors are just here to help you use the equipment. So we've got, um, in addition to the screen printing and the Rezo, we've got a button maker and we've got, uh, you know, basic rubber stamping, which anybody can pick up and do, you know, so like very, very accessible. I'm Natasha Holmes, a gallery assistant for Old Palcare and also a teacher here at Sage in the art department usually. You've been uh, one of the instructors on this the entire time here? Yeah, like. yeah. Uh, a lot of workshops. I think I've done like 10 or 11 now. Um, and some of the workshops are coming from the school. So some of the teachers want a tour of the show as well. So usually there's a few of us that have that extra ability to give them the frontal tour since it's two shows in one. And then when we have the stuff in the back talking about the protest um, angle has been really great for the gen ed classes. What age? Uh, let's see, we've got, there's three separate versions of classes that are coming in, so it's, one is a freshman class, the second version is sophomores and juniors. In college or high school? College. College, yeah. Okay. We have had, I don't think we've had any high school students. We've had high school teachers. We had a whole, um, oh. like, the Albany City teachers group that came in oh. and made art for the day, and it was awesome. What, what's your feeling on how the, how the kids react? Is there, can you... The stamps and buttons are usually the most favorite, of course. They're accessible. Yeah. They can make small ones. Some of them get really into it, and they'll start writing and drawing their own images. And then others have colored or done the overlappings with the stamps here. Sometimes we have groups that, like, they're walking out with ten <laughs> buttons apiece <laughs> and then get really into it. But And then others will be quiet and really get into the looking at the history on the back of all of the lexicons. So all of those mm. sheets have a history and a story on each one of them. So once they start seeing the process, then then it's easier for them to understand like what we can make and the possibilities behind it. But at first, it's usually overwhelming. <laughs> Do you think that, they, that the young people have been exposed to a lot of these images already? Like for me... You know, growing up in the '80s and '90s, like yeah. so much of this seems feels so familiar. Right. Like it's part of the sort of graphic language that I grew up with. Yeah, for but. sure. No, I don't think they have. Mm. <laughs> I think some of them. What we've talked about, and Josh pointed out early on, was the repetition of some of the symbols. So especially prevalent is the raised fist. Right. And so over and over again, of like, what does that mean? Where does, what can we say about it? Where Where did it start, and where did it come from? And that the usage of these uh, over time, also, the message can change by how they get juxtaposed together differently. So there is new ones up there as recent as, like, the indigenous women missing. It's like the red handprint over the face. So there's, like, one up there with just the red handprint from the 80s AIDS posters. Right. Yeah. So they recognize more modern uses of them, but, like, the historical ones that are kind of the first thing seen on there isn't as prevalent. So we could like divide up. So we could have somebody who wants to work on a poster 
So then at the same time, people can try the screen printing. The graphic liberation exhibit and workshop runs through October 29th at Opalka Gallery on New Scotland Avenue in Albany. If your community group is interested in signing up for an artist-guided workshop, you can email opalka at sage.edu to make an appointment. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. So I should mention that uh, uh, Andrea Cunliffe, uh, there's a second uh, exhibit going on at the same time uh, about uh, screen print. And so you can go on to mediasanctuary.org uh, in order to find out um, that interview. And, you know, this graphic liberation is basically trying to use a visual language of solidarity, human liberation, and dignity. Up next, Bria takes us to Troy Public Library for some scary kids' books for Halloween. So turn off the lights, gather by a candle, and get ready to get spooked. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, back once again at Troy Public Library, and get ready to be spooked. Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services, is here to give you some books to get you started on Halloween. Carol. Thanks for having us, Bree. Ah. <laughs> um, okay, the first book I have is Trick or Treat, Frankenstein, and it's written by Samantha Berger and illustrated by Dan Suntot. Not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, so it's a fun story. It's uh, for ages three to seven, and it's an older picture book from 2013, but it's about a little boy who gets grouchy um, because there's a number of things that happened to him um, that are just not great. And the, the day starts out with a toothache for him, and so everything just kind of goes downhill from there. And everything annoys him until he meets another Frankenstein. And so he's in a Frankenstein costume, but he may as well be the monster because uh, he's just kind of monstrous to everyone. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a fun tale for Halloween. Um, and the pictures are wonderful. I'm getting hungry looking at the end papers that have all the different kinds of candy you can get at Halloween. And then they're, they're wonderful, uh, big writing of sounds like rawr and not at all. This is great. So yeah, so he starts out with a very cranky Halloween, um, but it does get better uh, before the end. But I'm sure a lot of kids could relate to that and a lot of grownups. I've had my mornings of being a Frankenstein, so I can certainly relate. Great. And next? Next we have um, a, cl a classic, um, at least to me. It's called The Widow's Broom. It's by Chris Van Allsburg of the Polar Express fame. And this is one of my favorite read-alouds. Um, it's for ages 5 to 10. It's humorous. Um, and wait till you see the illustrations. They're brown, pencil drawn, and they convey the passage of time. So you feel like you are reading uh, a story from long ago, and it feels um, mysterious um, in its simplicity. But the details that are captured down to the smallest detail um, are just amazing. And this is the norm for Van Allsburg. Um, Okay, so like the first, let's talk about some of the some of the illustrations here. Here's one towards the beginning of the book, and you see there's no text for this page, but you see um, witches' feet dangling 
off the page and there's a broom and the witch is not actually on it and you see the hat and you see the cloak um, so you understand that she's falling. And uh, basically this, it, what happens in the story is a witch's broom kind of poops out um, just like an old car and she falls to the ground and lands in the garden uh, belonging to an old woman named Minna Shaw and uh, Shaw discovers the witch in her garden, and being a kind soul, she takes her in and helps her, uh, helps her get better. And then uh, one night, or the next night, the witch leaves around midnight, but what she leaves in the garden is her old broom, and it turns out that the broom um, is spirited, and so it starts sweeping, and she teaches it how to do... Uh, chop wood and do other chores, chores that she needs, and her neighbors happen to see it, and this being a, a somewhat religious, um, kind of superstitious community, they don't like that, and they um, plot to try to get rid of the broom, but she outtricks them, and uh, the ending is very humorous, and uh, even though it's uh, a children's book, I think adults would enjoy this as well. And I see there's about three paragraphs in slightly larger type on it per page. And what age group would you say this is for? Um, five to ten. So I, uh, I often read it to third graders um, when they come to the library for a visit. Great. So brooms can be used for things other than Quidditch, huh? Yes, apparently. Um, and they can do it all on their own. Wouldn't you love to have a broom like that? The next book I have is called... The Puppet's Payback, and this is written by uh, the queen of ghost stories, Mary Downing Hahn. And uh, this would be for ages 8 to 14. And it explains, um, she explains in an afterword in the book, which is included, how she got started writing ghost stories and um, how she goes about her process, which is kind of interesting, especially if there's any aspiring writers out there. Um, but it's a collection of ghost stories, very good and uh, very spooky. Um, sort of on the lines of goosebumps, maybe with a little edge. Is there a piece that you especially like that maybe you can just give us a taste of it, small taste of it? Um, I don't have anything picked out, but I have another ghost story I'd, I'd like to share in another book. Great. Okay, and that is... This is one of my favorite spooky stories for Halloween. It's called The Night Gardener. It's written by Jonathan Auxier, and it's about two orphans from Ireland who are so poor. Um, they've traveled to the English countryside, and they're looking for work. And they find work um, working for a family at a manor house. However, <clears throat> there's an evil tree that's next to the house, which is possessed by a spirit, and they call him the night gardener, and he keeps himself and the tree alive by stealing bits of people's souls. And uh, the tree has the power to grant wishes, and of course, that's the price. And uh, how he goes about stealing little bits of soul from children and families is um, pretty spooky. The tree, whose branches actually grow into the, into the walls of the house. The tree has a hole, or a knot, I guess you would call it. And you can, get, you can ask for anything that you want. You make a wish, and anything is granted, but there's the price. And the price is um, the night gardener gets to come and steal a little of your soul.
which is frightening if you can imagine this dark figure stalking the halls. Um, let me read to you just a little bit and you'll understand what I mean. A shiver licked up her spine as the wind moved over her body, grasping at her legs, her arms, the back of her neck, as if trying to identify her. Molly clenched her eyes shut, holding her brother tight, trying not to breathe. If I don't breathe, she thought, he might not find me. Suddenly, the wind died. Leaves fell softly to the grass, and all was silent but for one sound, the slow crunch of footsteps on gravel. The night man was heading straight toward the well. Molly gripped Kip even tighter. She didn't dare turn her head, didn't dare look at the man who was 20, now 10, now five feet away. Molly felt a chill that might have been his shadow, and the footsteps stopped right beside her. From the corner of her eye, she could see the night man standing next to her, nearly on top of her, facing away toward the woods. Molly stared at his boots. They were caked in mud, worn with decay, and did not match. Molly knew those boots. They were the boots whose tracks she cleaned from the halls every morning, each time telling herself they meant nothing. But of course, they did mean something, something wicked. OK, we're taping this in the middle of the day, and I think I still want somebody to escort me to my car after hearing that. <laughs> Yes, uh, the thing I meant to mention was this is a story about two Irish orphans, um, and they've traveled to the English countryside to try to find work um, to, support, um, to support themselves. And so there's a lot of literary um, elements in the story. Um, you sort of see references to Paradise Lost um, and other things, so it's... Uh, wonderfully written. I think even though, it, again, it's a young adult book practically, um, I think all adults would love it if they like ghost stories. Great. Those were wonderful books, and I know that a library is a lot more than books these days. What are some of the great activities you have coming up in late, in late October? We have a Lego club, and our next uh, meeting, it's every, well, it's every second and fourth Wednesday of the month from 6 to 7 p.m. at our main branch. And the next meeting is October 26th, Wednesday, from 6 to 7. Um, and then Silly Science Night, we have the first Tuesday of the month, also from 6 to 7 at Maine. And then we have Tween Craft Night, which is the third Tuesday of the month, 6 to 7 at Maine, and the dates um, will are up on our website and also on our Facebook page. Um, and then on Mondays, every week, we have family game night from 5.30 to 7.30, and people can head to the library each week for family game night in the young people's room, play our board games, or bring your own. And so for all of those activities, the uh, Silly Science, Tween Craft, Brick Builders, you supply all the supplies. I assume that the Legos, they have to leave here, but the Silly Science and, and Craft Projects, they can take home? Yes. Yes. Great. And that was Carol Roberts, Young People's Librarian, Young People's Services Librarian at the main branch of Troy Public Library at 100 Second Street, Troy, for the... Scary Halloween edition. Thanks a lot, Carol. Thanks, Bria. And that was Bria Barthel with another one of her reports about the library system. The four books today, Halloween for Young Children, Trick or Treat, Crankenstein, The Widow's Broom, 
the night gardener and the puppets payback and other chilling tales for our last segment megan mullahan mulholland talks with justin she about her collection of poems titled crossing the divide she will be the third thursday poetry night at the albany social justice center on thursday october 20th at 7 30 p.m you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Justin Shi, and we have with us Megan Mulholland. She's a local poet and English professor at Hudson Valley Community College. Her collection of poetry titled Crossing the Divide was released just last year, and she'll be the featured poet during the third Thursday Poetry Night at the Albany Social Justice Center this Thursday, October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start off, um, how did you first get into poetry? Um, I was thinking about that. I won a high school English award, and my mother bought me a typewriter as a reward. And that pretty much um, helped me chart my path to uh, being an English major in college. Speaking of college, um, were there any uh, teachers, professors, or any other type of people that were influential in leading you along this path? Yes, there were many. Um, I graduated early from high school, and I decided to do that sort of late in the semester. So I immediately went to Plattsburgh State, um, and the English department there was so good. I didn't want to transfer anywhere else. I had just incredible professors there, um, and then at Binghamton University, um, Liz Rosenberg was my thesis advisor. And then at UAlbany, uh, Jennifer Fleischner was a brilliant person I got to work with. Um, and she actually said um, that sometimes the stuff of poetry uh, is sort of swept under the carpet. And the poets are the ones who see what has filtered down through the floorboards and sift through that. Because uh, we're all trying to um, to express the human condition, but it's not all immediately um, attractive or accessible. So you have to sort of mine a little bit for poetry sometimes. So going on that, um, you're a professor at uh, Hudson Valley Community College. Um, right. Do you think that your experience in teaching literature and um, seeing your students writing has influenced how you write in any way? Yes, definitely. Um, I was also thinking about that too. Some of my work has literally been written in between classes as I'm walking from building to building because students do inspire you so much. And another thing is I'm able to give them, like I can see on the page, they're hinting at something or they want to explore something, but they're a little timid about putting it down. So I say like, you know, the page can't talk back. You can talk to the page, but the page isn't going to talk back to you. So you can say whatever you want to that page, you know, and that way they start to um, open up and really fully express themselves. I can't tell you how um, impressed I am every semester with my creative writers. As a recent college graduate myself and um, as somebody who uh, dabbles in poetry, I know that a lot of uh, my professors have definitely influenced me in that kind of way. That's great. That's what we're all trying to do. And in your collection of poems, Crossing the Divide, um, you combine poetry together with photographs 
um, to try and create a sort of connection with your uh, late father. Yeah. Um, uh, in what way would you say that uh, poetry and photography are intertwined? Well, for me, they're very, very closely linked. So I lost my father when I was an infant, so I actually never knew him. But I did know his, you know, hundreds, thousands of photographs um, and slides. He was a hobby photographer. And um, through the years, they, you know, were stored out of order and um, in all different types of ways. So I made it my project to um, put them in chronological order and save them uh, digitally. So that whole process really helped me to um, sort of chart his life and chart his life with my mother and with um, my siblings. So it was really um, a great way for me to gain perspective and also to make something positive out of, out of an absence. So um, would you say that poetry beyond being just a literary art form is also a visual one as well? Yeah, I I do think that. And in some of my poems, I've actually um, created the type adjacent or over top of an image. Um, and that's one of my favorite things to do, actually, um, to you know, have an inter-arts kind of poem. It's very freeing. And you know, much less linear than the way we normally think about poems. And not only are you a poet, but um, you're also a writer of fiction and nonfiction as well. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Um, I've done some book reviews. I've done uh, creative nonfiction. One of my um, stories was inspired by uh, an Irish aunt, and it was um, Maria talking back to James Joyce. And that was a fun story to write. And that um, received some notoriety. I was happy about that. Anytime I can work in my Irish heritage or my family, I'm happy. I don't know if they are, but I am. That sounds interesting. What story was that? It was called Maria Addresses Mr. James Joyce. I'll have to <laughs> read that one. So on top of uh, reading this Thursday at the Social Justice Center, uh, you also read a few weeks back at the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, and you'll be reading next month at the Albany Public Library. Right, yeah. Uh, so what do you think you get out of events like featured writings and open mics and that kind of stuff? Um, well, that first one that you spoke about was um, a culmination of poets submitting their short poems to artists who created works of art from them. And I had never done anything like that before. So with the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, um, Dan Wilcox organized the whole thing. And it was just so much fun and such a different way to appreciate both art and poetry. Um, and it was really well attended and everybody just seemed to love that um, coupling of, of painting and poetry. And uh, what kind of uh, content do you have planned for um the reading this Thursday? I think I'm going to read from Crossing the Divide, my new book, and I'll read poems about my father interspersed with some about my mother as well. I, I think I'll probably focus on the poems about my father with the photographs where I sort of enter a relationship with him through the photographs. Well, um, if you want mind, I would love to hear one of your poems. Oh, sure. So this is a little different one. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but it's um, 
its um, machinery in the back garden um, behind the house where I grew up. Um, and it inspired this poem for me. It's called Lay the Tracks, Jack. Jack is my father's name. Lay the tracks, Jack, clickety-clack. Forward and back, you've got to stack with Tyson Steel. Here, where you can feel the earth beneath, heave with the weight of the rails. Pound them down, son, joined end to end. I watch you pretend you are the foreman. Woo, 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 sounding out a warning from the back of the garden. That was beautiful. I loved how, like, rhythmic that was. Yeah, he was very much into photography and very much into trains. Could you speak more about um, that kind of, like, familial past? Well, it was his hobby since uh, childhood. He was always interested in trains. And um, even into his adulthood, um, which is part of the reason I did sort of like this more playful poem, um, like, he would stop, you know, on any trip or... Um, journey and photograph, you know, antique trains or trolleys or, um, you know, pursue this hobby of his uh, well into adulthood. So I also liken in this volume, my brothers and sisters to train cars and him to the engineer um, who was sort of leading our family. So um, the, the fact that we lost him so early also uh, has sort of a uh, an element of catastrophe. So I also think about and bring into the writing, you know, accidents on the railroad. At least you're able to make something beautiful out of um, oh. what may be considered a tragic event. Thank you very much. But um, yeah, uh, that ring was fantastic. Uh, so. Thank you for reading and uh, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. This has been Justin Shee for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine speaking with Megan Mulholland. You can hear more of Megan's poems at the Albany Social Justice Center this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. And that was another one of our ongoing coverage of the third Thursday Poetry Night, which takes place at the Albany Social Justice Center. Um, you can check out mediacentra.org for uh, previous uh, interviews on Albany uh, Third Thursday Poetry Night. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley. Um, our engineer tonight is uh, Sina Basila Hickey, providing her usual outstanding service. Uh, we want to thank all the volunteers that made this episode possible. Contributors to today's show uh, have been Moses Nagel, Bria Barthel, Justin Shee, uh, Sally, and myself. Uh, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice. If you value the independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. 
Until next time, folks.